thanks also, Sarah, for reading the Bible earlier. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to have you joining us this morning. Uh, like Graham said earlier, uh, this morning we're looking at continuing to work our way through John's Gospel, looking at God's Word together. In case we haven't met before, I'm Lachlan. Uh, I usually look after the 9am congregation that meets here at Camaray. Uh, and today, as we look at John chapter 12, we're thinking about how we respond to royalty. How do you respond to royalty? I mean, honestly, in Australia, it's not a question that we really have to grapple with much in our day-to-day, and not just because of two years of COVID and no international travel. Uh, Even before that, thinking about how you respond to royalty is just not a problem that we have to face regularly. Uh, So a couple of years ago, when I had a brush with royalty, uh, I felt somewhat ill-prepared. Uh, Megan and Harry might not technically be royalty anymore, but a few years ago when they visited, uh, they were. They were out for the Invictus Games, and it just so happened that I had the chance uh, for a fleeting meeting. Uh, and as I was prepped for uh, meeting the, uh, uh, one of the, the princes, I was told, you know, the way to greet him is, you know, you nod your head, address him as your highness, and you wait for him to uh, speak to you. Easy, right? Uh, As he made his way down the line, I was repeating it in my head. Uh, Say your highness, nod your head. Say your highness, nod your head. Say your highness, nod your head. And finally he got to me and he held out his hand and I said, G'day Harry. (laughs) There was a right way to respond to royalty and I completely dropped the ball. Uh, Thanks, you can put the photo away now. I can stop looking at my awkward face there. Uh, Now it didn't worry Harry, he was lovely, uh, but I just thought, man... I am such a bogan. Uh, just the, the Australianness in me just came right out. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't matter that much. It was a quick sh- handshake on the way out of an event. Uh, and, you know, it wouldn't have, uh, it, it just, it wouldn't have been a, a, an issue. But the way that you respond to royalty, especially if you've got a, an important relationship with them, it matters. It says something about how you view them and their authority. And as we've been working our way through John's gospel, we've been looking at uh, the idea that Jesus is the Christ, God's rescuing king. And today particularly challenges us to consider how we are responding to God's rescuing king. How are you responding to royalty? There is quite a lot going on in chapter 12. uh, And though even if we're familiar with a lot of the stories in here, even if we've been followers of Jesus for years, this part of John's gospel places before us Jesus and his mission in a way that challenges us to consider how we are responding to him and what it actually reveals about us. And if you're chatting with people maybe later today or during the week, a related question that might be a slightly better conversation starter than just how do you respond to royalty with a hook in today's passage might be, When have you thought something is true or good for you, but you've decided that the cost is not worth it? When have you decided something is true or good for you, but the cost just wasn't worth it? That might be a good conversation started, a hook into some of the themes we're looking at in the passage today. As we go through the passage, we're going to do it in a few parts. First, we're going to look at images of the king and see these discordant images that Jesus pulls together to help us understand what sort of king he is. And then we'll consider some of the ways that people respond to Jesus. And we'll finish up thinking a bit about what this passage has to say to us today. 
So first off, images of the king. The first scene in chapter 12, we're looking at in verses 1 to 11, and there's hints of kingship as well as death. The first part of the story, it takes place six days before the Passover, the annual celebration where Jews from all around the world would come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Exodus, the time where God rescued his people from Egypt and slavery. And as the festival approached, Jesus returns to Bethany. It's about three kilometres outside of Jerusalem, and it's where he raised Lazarus from the dead that we heard about last week. And because he was now back in the area, he'd had to leave quickly because, well, there was a, a death threat against him. When he was back in the area, Mary and Martha uh, and Lazarus, uh, they threw a dinner in Jesus' honour because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And while this is happening, while this dinner is going on, Mary took the opportunity to show her devotion to Jesus. Verse 3, Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped her feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, we don't tend to use the word anoint too often, uh, but it's basically a word to describe applying a, a liquid or an ointment to someone. Uh, you know, if we're celebrating or, or going out for a nice dinner, we'd put on perfume or cologne. We, we might say we give ourselves a spritz or a spray, but sometimes you might still then, you know, anoint yourself as you wipe it on, smear it onto your person. But anointing someone was also done in Bible times as a sign to set them apart for a particular task. Uh, the word Christ or Messiah that we've kind of seen means God's rescuing king, uh, it literally means the anointed one or the smeared one, the one who'd been smeared with oil, set apart for a particular task, particularly to rule God's people. And so as Mary pours this expensive ointment over Jesus' feet and wipes them with her hair, it's an image with somewhat royal overtones. But then when Jesus responds to Judas, Judas's criticism, well, we see that Jesus' understanding of what Mary has done is completely at odds with an understanding of celebration or, or of signalling royalty. Jesus' interpretation is a bit different. He says, leave her alone, verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. See, Jesus relates Mary's action to preparing him for, for burial, for death. This image, this scene that's flavoured with celebration and even hints of royalty and being set apart as God's Christ, it's interpreted by Jesus as relating to his death. These two discordant images are set side by side. Or in scene two. Verse 12 to 19, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and is again uh, showing a picture of celebration with a royal flavour. Verse 12, the next day a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. As Jesus arrives and they bring, uh, run out to meet him, they bring along palm branches. Uh, palm branches were the national plant of Israel. This is a, a coin from uh, the Jewish rebellion uh, several years after Jesus. And the symbol that they have on the back of their coin is uh, the date palm, 
the palm leaves or this national Israel symbol, kind of like wattle might be for Australia. And they're waving their palm branches, shouting Hosanna, which basically means God saves us. Uh, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And most tellingly, blessed is the king of Israel. It's a royal welcome. And Jesus, for his part, seems willing to accept it. We've seen that people wanted to make Jesus king earlier in John's gospel, and Jesus rejected that. But this time he seems to accept it. He accepts uh, this, uh, this praise from people, but not without qualification. Jesus gets on a donkey. Uh, it sounds a little bit weird, and even at the time, verse 16, the point seems to have been lost on his disciples. But Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament, particularly at Zechariah 9.9. Uh, it's a passage from the Old Testament that talks about the coming of God's king, the king of peace, coming in humility. And as the passage continues, it talks about the removal of war horses and chariots that God's people have amassed. As we've been going through John's Gospel, one of the things that we've seen is that the popular understanding of the day was that the Christ, God's rescuing king, would defeat the Romans and re-establish the nation-state of Israel. And while Jesus seems to finally accept the title of king, he signals that his kingship is very different to the popular expectation of the day. Jesus' rule and victory isn't going to come about through violent force of arms, but through humility, through being brought low. In this scene of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, images of royalty are once again moderated by Jesus, but this time with an emphasis of humility, being brought low. And the final scene in our first part of today's talk, Jesus is approached. He's approached by some Greeks, verse 20 to 36. As some Greeks approach one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, and ask to see Jesus, which starts Jesus talking. But by the time we get to verse 34, we see he seems to have been talking to more the crowd in general. The Greeks who kicked off this whole scenario, they seem to be left in the background. They don't seem to be addressed again. It, it seems a bit odd. Well, a couple of things just to help us wrestle with this passage. Firstly, back in Jesus' day, from the Jewish perspective, there were two types of people, uh, Jews and Gentiles, uh, the non-Jews, uh, and Greeks are non-Jews. They represent the non-Jewish or Gentile world. And while they could choose to come to Judaism and to the God of the Old Testament, there were always barriers to their full admission to the people of God. At the same time, one of the things that the Old Testament looked forward to was the day that the nations would come to God, leaving behind their ways and following him. And for that to happen, God's rescuing king needed to act. And these Greeks coming to see Jesus signaled to him that the hour for him to do what he had been sent to do, so that the nations could indeed come to God, had come. The hour was here. And once again, as we see Jesus talking, we see that Jesus brings together images of kingship and victory with death and defeat. See, on the one hand, there's glorious victory. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Or verse 31, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. He signals it's the time for the defeat of the enemy of God's people, Satan. But on the other hand, death, verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus brings these two ideas together and he brings them together most clearly uh, first in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. See, seed being planted in the ground has similarities to a dead person being buried. However, the seed had to die so that the plant could grow and more seeds be produced. Death gives way to life. Or again in verse 32, And when I am lifted up from the earth, uh, I will draw all people to myself. The language of being lifted up, it's the same word that you would use uh, to describe being exalted, or perhaps in our modern idiom, uh, someone ascending the throne. But Jesus particularly has his death in mind. This idea of uh, going up to the throne and, and kingship is explicitly paired with death. Jesus' kingship and his death are interwoven. Because it's through Jesus' death on the cross, in the place of his people's sin, that Jesus would be glorified, that he would show himself to be God's rescuing king. It's through Jesus' death he would defeat Satan, the prince of this world who brings people's guilt before a just and holy God and demands a price be paid. It's through Jesus' death he would bring life to his people and it's through Jesus' death that these blessings would go out not only to the Jews but also to the nations of the world as he draws the world to himself. See, the Greeks showing up and asking to see Jesus shows that it is time for Jesus to live out the purpose that he's been brought into the world for. In the longer term, that means drawing all people like these Greeks to himself so that they might have life. But in the short term, Jesus must take the place of the king as he dies on the cross. Jesus has come as God's king to win a far greater victory over a far deadlier enemy to bless far more people than the crowd has dared to dream of. Throughout these first three scenes, we're presented with the type of king that Jesus is and the nature of the problem that he has come to save us from. And we're being presented with this picture so that we would rightly respond to him. We're heading into our second part of the talk now, responding to the king. Did you notice when we heard the Bible read earlier that in the middle of that section where Jesus has been responding to the Greeks showing up, Jesus calls on the crowd to respond. Verse 25, there's an implicit call to respond here. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honour the one who serves me. The culture of Jesus' day, they used the language of love and hate as a way of expressing priority and loyalty. The thing you loved is the thing you prioritised. The thing you hate 
well, it might still be an important part of your life, it's just that when push comes to shove, something else is the priority. It might look like you hate the other thing because the other thing is so important. Following Jesus means making him number one, the chief thing you are loyal to. And as chapter 12 concludes, responding to Jesus becomes the focus. But responding to Jesus has actually been a key idea in the first three scenes as well. Uh, We've skipped over it thus far, but as we've read chapter 12, we've been seeing a range of responses to Jesus. One was a wholehearted act of devotion to Jesus. We heard Mary poured incredibly expensive perfume over Jesus' feet and then wipes them with her hair. In the ancient world, uh, long hair could be considered a woman's glory. Uh, And here, Mary is using her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, a task usually dumped on the lowest-ranking servant in a house. That she would use her hair to wipe Jesus' feet, well, it really says something about how precious Jesus is to her. And that preciousness is matched by the extravagance of the perfume. Uh, Nard was made from the spike nard plant, uh, and it's found in northern India. Uh, You can see Jerusalem sort of in the middle left-hand side of the map there, uh, the northern India Himalaya region on the sort of bottom to middle right-hand side of the map. Uh, That's over three and a half thousand kilometres as the crow flies. It's further than it is from Sydney to Perth. No wonder it cost almost a year's wages. It is an incredibly precious gift. As we see people responding to Jesus, Mary is an example of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Another response looked virtuous and dedicated to the king and his cause, but it was just a veneer. Judas had followed Jesus. He was even close enough to be part of the group of disciples and be their treasurer. He's seen the evidence mount that Jesus is God's rescuing king and that he is good and worth following. And on the surface, he appears to be on the right page, advocating for the poor. But it's just a veneer. It's a veneer that marks his own self-interest and greed. And it would end in him betraying Jesus. We've also seen parts of the crowd respond in different ways too. Some who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the tomb told other people, despite the potential personal cost, they were ready to tell others about Jesus so that they might come and investigate him. That was in verse 17. Some continue to want to see Jesus and now Lazarus as well. They were curious about Jesus, maybe even suspect He is God's rescuing king, but they've yet to decide whether he's worth following. We see that in verse 9 and 12 and 18. Others who seem to have come to Jesus, who seem to have recognised that he's God's rescuing king, well, they, they still have their own ideas about what God's rescuing king should be doing. They push back on Jesus when he challenges their preconceived ideas. We didn't really look at that closely, but it's there in verse 34. And finally, we see the chief priests who are already looking to kill Jesus add Lazarus to their hit list as well, doing whatever it takes to bury the evidence of who Jesus is instead of considering what it meant, what it revealed about who Jesus was, and how they should relate to him. We'll reflect on all those responses a little more in a moment. 
But before we get there, we need to kind of acknowledge while there are positive responses to Jesus, the negative responses seem to far outweigh them. You know, if the evidence that Jesus is the Christ is so strong, why do so many people keep rejecting Jesus? Well, John sees the answer in the Old Testament, in what God had spoken in the past through the prophet Isaiah. Firstly, in verse 38, he draws our attention to part of Isaiah's vision of God's suffering servant who would die taking the punishment for God's people in order to heal them. And people rejecting God's rescuer was something that God said would happen in advance. Many rejecting Jesus is to be expected. It's part of God's plan. But also, verse 40 highlights that by sending Jesus, who delivered God's message, God continued to harden people's hearts. See, by making the problem of their sin clear and inviting them to trust Jesus, God had also given them the option to turn away, to reject him. And as they hear and turn away, it's almost like they're building their rejection muscles. They're developing a callus, that thickening of the skin that comes from repeated friction that you, know, you might get uh, when you do a lot of manual labor. God had confirmed they aren't interested in him or his ways. But that's not all. As John continues in verse 42, we see even some of the leaders believed in Jesus. They understood what he was saying and what he'd done. They recognized that his claims were true. But they refused to side with Jesus because siding with Jesus had a cost. They didn't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. That would have been losing their family, their friends, their business contacts, their whole lives would have been turned upside down. They decided that the cost of following Jesus wasn't worth it. And so they didn't follow. It can be heartbreaking when people don't respond positively to Jesus, especially when they're people that we love. I was talking to Caitlin about this earlier in the week and she was reminding me of a time when she ran Christianity Explored and she was doing it with someone who she cared very deeply about, who got to the end of the course and said, you know what, I believe it's true. I believe what Jesus is saying. But I see the cost that following Jesus has on you. I see some of the costs that I would have to pay, things I would have to give up. And I don't want to do that. I'm not going to follow him. It's sad when people reject Jesus, especially when they're people who we love and care about. But when people refuse to follow Jesus, there is also comfort here. See, we can see that as people reject Jesus and his messengers, God is still in control. He's still working his purposes out. And that actually means we can still pray to God for them because God can soften even the hardest heart. It means that we can trust that as he continues to work out his plan, even though we might not know what he's up to, we can trust he's still in control. And we can look to Jesus who models the love and tenderness that we can show as we continue to call people to trust in Jesus. And we see it as the chapter, and in fact, Jesus' whole public ministry in John's gospel is capped off with a climactic appeal from Jesus to follow him. And it draws together so many of the key themes that we've been looking at as we've looked at John's gospel. 
Verse 44, Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. See, believing in Jesus, it's not just trusting some guy, it's trusting the God of the universe. And Jesus has come to bring light, to bring people from darkness, the hopeless despair that comes from living in a world under the shadow of death, enabling us to turn back to God that we might have light and life and hope. His purpose isn't to judge people, we see as he continues, but to save them so that they might have eternal life. But at the same time, his presence and his message does act as a judgment. Because as people hear God's call to come back and reject it, they choose to reject the salvation God offers. People choose to remain in darkness where they already are standing under God's judgment. Chapter 12 concludes with a final and impassioned plea from Jesus to trust him while there's time. So the question as we wrap up is, how will you respond to the king? And obviously, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there is an imperative here to trust Jesus, to start following him. If this is your first time with us or uh, you're still in the early days of considering Jesus, keep investigating him. If you are still considering his claims, by all means, keep wrestling with them. But be aware that sooner or later, Jesus calls you to make a decision. He calls you not just to make a decision, but to make a decision to trust him. Because he is the only one who can deal with the problem of sin and the reality of death. If you want to investigate Jesus or start following him, we'd love to help you do that. Uh, you might like to talk to a follower of Jesus you know, or you can contact us through our website, through ncachurch.com and the I'm New page. Uh, let us know you're interested in finding out more. We'd love to help you do that, especially as we start to open up more. But what about for those of us who already follow Jesus? I mean, isn't this rehashing stuff that we already know? Jesus is God's rescuing king who dies on the cross for my sin. We know that. There might not be new facts here for us to consider, but as we've been seeing the various ways people respond to Jesus, I think we've been challenged to consider, how am I responding to Jesus? To ask ourselves, how am I responding to Jesus? Is it with wholehearted devotion like Mary? Am I less focused on Jesus and more focused on myself like Judas? Am I telling others about what Jesus has done, like the people who saw him raise Lazarus? Or am I hiding away the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus, like some of the leaders, because I'm afraid of what it will cost? Or like the crowd, do I oscillate back and forth between convenient recognition of Jesus as king and pushing back or ignoring him when he says things that rock my boat that little bit too much? Well, if you're anything like me, I think all of the responses that we've seen in this chapter actually have some degree of resonance. You know, yeah, there are moments that I can point to that show a deep devotion for Jesus as God's king, but there are far too many times where I'm driven by selfishness and greed and the fear of what others will think of me if they know I'm associated with Jesus. 
far too many times where I'll skip over what he says because actually it's just a bit too inconvenient to think about. When John writes his biography of Jesus so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name, well, part of that is how we keep responding to Jesus. How we respond to Jesus is shaped by our understanding of who he is and what he's done for us. And John wants us to continue to see with fresh eyes the glory of our crucified king, to see the depth of the problem that he has come to solve and the reality of life that we have if we follow him so that we might be wholehearted disciples. Disciples whose devotion to Jesus might seem scandalous and foolish to the world around us as we readily give of things that the world sees as precious and to continue to tell others about Jesus even when the cost is high. John points us again to the glory of Christ so that we may be wholehearted disciples. His responding to Jesus, it's not a one-off thing, it's a lifelong thing. And as we continue through life, as we face different challenges, as different uh, uh, areas of responsibility uh, are given to us, we'll feel the pinch in different ways. At one stage of our lives, it might have been really easy to be open about being a Christian in the workplace. But as we've taken on more responsibility and more leadership, that might now be harder. Because it's trickier to navigate from a position of power and, well, there's just more at stake if it costs me something. John 12 challenges us to consider, how am I responding to Jesus? But also, as I'm confronted with my own lacklustre devotion, it reminds me of Jesus' love for me, of his call to us to keep turning and trusting him, to know that he is the one who saves me, so that my response to Jesus can be motivated not by guilt that I'm far too prone to being motivated by, but by love for my king who died for me, that I might live. As we read John 12, we see God's rescuing king fulfilling that role that he, as he prepares to go to the cross. We're challenged to consider our response to the king. And as we're aware of our own lackluster discipleship, we're pointed back to him so that we might be disciples whose love for our king is wholehearted and shapes every area of our lives. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus your rescuing king who died so that we might live. Please work in our hearts that we might serve him wholeheartedly and unashamedly follow him, follow him, even when the cost is great. When we struggle to keep Jesus as the focus of our lives, help us to see with greater clarity his goodness and love and the life he has given us through the cross, that we might love him. Amen.